Hi, this is Emma Katrovis, host of the Artists on the Verge podcast, and you are listening to a solo episode. I named my solo episode Snippets because Artists on the Verge started as a research project into the lives of artists through interviews, and I imagine each solo episode in which I often share my readings on art, politics, economics, or anthropology, among other things, to be like a newspaper clipping, a piece of information or a source you might cut out and keep around for later use as you piece together the bigger picture of what it means to be an artist today. For further information about this podcast, visit the Artists on the Verge website, linked in the description. So I didn't know this, but it wasn't until 2020 that the G20 held its first cultural ministerial meeting to discuss the importance of the creative sector to the economy. And it wasn't until 2021 that the G20 established the Cultural Working Group, the purpose of which is to address issues relating to the creative economy. That's actually kind of wild when you think about it, right? They just started talking about the creative sector more deeply in the G20 summit and only in direct response to the pandemic, it seems. Now, hopefully you're not like me, but if you are like me and most artists probably, you've probably heard of the G20, but if you were asked what it does, you wouldn't be sure. The G20 is basically an intergovernmental forum. So an organization centered on having discussions about stuff, in this case, economic stuff. It connects 19 countries, including giants like China and the United States and India, and all of the European Union. Together, its member countries represent 85% of the global GDP and two-thirds of the world's population. And the delegates come together every year for the G20 summit. So if you want a global, international view of how the arts are viewed by the people trying to run the world, or at least the reports that might pass over their desks as they try to run the world, the G20 Cultural Working Group's reading materials may not be a bad place to start. So what I'm going to read to you today is a report on the state of the creative industries, which was written up for the first Cultural Working Group in 2021. The report was not prepared by the Cultural Working Group itself, but by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, which is an external organization, the purpose of which is to, quote, inform policies and create global standards. A lot of what the OECD came up with is going to be obvious to artists who actually exist within the sector, but I think there is something useful about seeing the way policymakers might talk about the creative sector, the information they might have at their disposal, and how they might interpret it. As always, let me know if hearing me read this is interesting to you in any way, whether you're a practicing artist or just someone who cares about the arts. I personally find it helpful to get a sense of how the creative sector is regarded from an economic point of view, if only to confirm that it's important for artists to carve out a place for themselves independently without relying on governments and other large-scale organizations. So with no further ado, this is how the creative sector is talked about by the people trying to run the world. The Economic and Social Impact of Cultural and Creative Sectors. Note for Italy G20 Presidency Cultural Working Group 2021. So the document starts actually with a summary of all of the findings and key issues. So here it goes. Cultural and creative sectors are a significant source of jobs and income and also generate important spillover to the wider economy. They are a driver of innovation a source of creative skills with strong backward and forward linkages in the economy. I had to look this up. Backward and forward linkages just means uh, work produced before and after the 
product is actually produced. So let's say we're talking about the film industry, the upstream linkage would be, you know, making the cameras, for example, uh, then you actually produce the film and then the downstream linkage is festivals or cinemas. So they have strong backwards and forward linkages in the economy and act as a magnet that helps drive growth in other sectors such as tourism. Beyond their economic impacts, they also have significant social impacts from supporting health and well-being to promoting social inclusion and local social capital. However, the absence of international comparable statistics that reveal their full economic and social impacts also means that the sectors remain largely undervalued in the policy debate. They'll talk about this a lot later, but the whole issue of defining what actually falls under the creative sector is like a whole thing. So it makes it very hard to actually measure its impact. And they argue that for that reason, a lot of policymakers kind of undervalue it or ignore it because they actually don't have the proper measurements for it. As governments across the G20 reconsider growth models in the wake of COVID-19, cultural and creative sectors can be a driver in a resilient recovery. There is an opportunity for culture to play an even greater role in driving economic, social, and indeed environmental outcomes. For this potential to be realized, efforts are needed not only to ensure the sector survives the COVID-19 crisis, but also that these opportunities are exploited and the longer-term challenges facing the sector are addressed, from high rates of precarious employment to the structural fragility of many businesses in the sector. So this little tag-on sentence really, I think, expresses what a lot of artists and small arts organizations feel, just the precariousness um, of that kind of employment and those kinds of organizations. Now they have five points that they feel policymakers should consider. One, viewing culture as an economic and social investment, not simply a cost. Two, culture-proofing a range of policies to create a level playing field for creative professionals and firms in terms of access to employment, innovation, and business support measures. You know, cult what culture-proofing means is like a whole thing, and that's probably what they're debating in these meetings and what they probably can't get very far in agreeing on, I assume. <laughs> Mainstreaming culture as an integral part of wider policy agendas such as social cohesion, innovation, health and well-being, the environment and sustainable local development. Meaning, you know, kind of acknowledge and make it a norm to consider culture um, and the, the creative sector, therefore, as a part of all these agendas that they're constantly talking about in all these policy debates, uh, like, you know, innovation, health and well-being, um, the environment. Uh, just to give an example, it's kind of assumed that when they talk about health and well-being and the environment, they're going to talk about agriculture. Now they're saying, just as we assume that agriculture is part of the health and well-being and the environmental agendas, we should assume that the cultural sector is part of that as well. And it should just be part of those debates naturally and without question. Four, improving internationally comparable statistics and the evidence base on the scale, scope, and impacts of cultural and creative sectors both as a driver of economic growth, but also well-being, social cohesion, and sustainability. So they're just saying, we need to have better statistics on this. We don't have, like, every country is, is measuring something else and measuring it differently. And we need to actually measure what the sector is, delineate it consistently, and gather that data. And finally, number five, building the capacity of national and local governments to integrate culture into broader economic and social development strategies in line with the sustainable development goals. Um, this is kind of a tag on. I'm not sure 
how this isn't the same as a kind of mainstreaming culture as an integral part of wider policy agendas. I guess the distinction is looking at local, um, local that is particular countries and thinking about their particular issues and fitting uh, considerations of the cultural sector into that. Okay, so now we have the table of contents. And there's box number one. There is actually no other box, but box uh, number one, it's kind of an, some information kind of set aside that they, that they want uh, whoever's reading this to see, which has to do with the issue of defining what the actual cultural sector is. What are cultural and creative sectors and how are they measured? Cultural and creative sectors, or CCS, typically include heritage, archives and libraries, books and press, visual and performing arts, audiovisual and multimedia, architecture, design, cultural education, and arts and crafts. Organizational models vary from publicly funded museums and heritage sites to large private firms such as Netflix or Spotify to micro firms and freelancers such as designers, artists, and musicians. I mean, here in that sentence, they're really showing the incredible scope of what we mean when we say the cultural sector, some countries uh, have have a pretty strong publicly funded sector, which is usually publicly funded because it it is it is said to have some kind of cultural legacy. And then you have these big uh, giants, these these tech giants, usually like Netflix and Spotify, which actually are big players on the market, on the free market, um, the global market. And then you have, and that's kind of the space that this podcast moves in, the micro firms and freelancers, which are also part of this market, but they're kind of these these free radicals, I would say. Um, and I think pretty hard to measure by the kinds of people who do these measurements, who do these studies. Whilst there have been considerable efforts, such as those of UNESCO and Eurostat, the, st the statistics arm of the European Commission, and UNCTAD's effort on trade, Differences and concepts remain. They in part reflect differences in targets, i.e. value added generated by the sector, direct jobs created by the sector, jobs classes by the occupation, as opposed to industry of workers, international trade in cultural and creative products, and measures of household final consumption of cultural and creative products. I assume that every sector has this issue, but they're just uh, enumerating the various ways that you could actually approach defining the sector from the consumer's point of view, from the employment po point of view, um, or from like the, the way that it stimulates the economy point of view, etc., etc. This means that care is needed in international comparisons, not least because the ability of countries to align to any particular definition will also differ depending on the sectors present in the country and the availability of granular data. I would also say that there's cultural differences in how people view art, and that gets reflected in how they're going to actually measure the, what's happening in their country. Some countries, for example, will include gastronomy, indigenous heritage, fashion, software, and games industry, or virtual artificial reality in their national CCS, CCS or cultural and creative sectors definitions, while challenges around measuring jobs and income from informal, secondary, non-standard forms of employment affect most countries. So they're saying the, the non-standard employment that's rampant within the arts affects how you can measure it and makes it difficult. And then also the fact that what actually falls into the cultural and creative sectors um, is defined differently by every country. In addition, significant shares of cultural and creative output and consumption and indeed employment are treated as non-market transactions and largely invisible in statistical measures, despite their impact on well-being and spillovers to the market economy. 
So non-market transactions, I'm not sure if this falls under that, but later on they talk about the informal economy um, and how a lot of the creative economy is um, an informal economy. And the informal economy is stuff that's basically happening, which is undocumented, people working without contracts and, and this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if, that's if, if, that's, if it includes other stuff beyond that. I, I assume it does. But basically, they're just saying this sector is pretty hard to measure because there's a lot of weird stuff going on that's kind of under the radar. More fundamentally, little systemic evidence beyond ad hoc surveys currently exists on the broader concept and benefits from cultural participation. This is the case despite its relevance for achieving broader social outcomes, in particular with respect to health, social cohesion, and well-being, and indeed the material benefits this can bring, i.e. lower government health spending. I mean, they're actually saying that because the presence of a, of a strong creative arts sector improves well-being, it might actually lower health spending. A concerted effort by G20 countries and international organizations is needed to help build better evidence on the sector's economic and social impacts and in turn provide scope for policies that can better leverage on the full benefits of the sector. Basically, more studies and more information is needed, is what they're saying, which I think is an underlying issue here. But I, I also think that, that it's therefore positive that just recently they even started asking these questions because you at least have to start with the question. And maybe hopefully, however slowly it happens, they'll actually start um, looking at this sector um, a little bit more seriously. But I'll say right now, I if you look at some of the materials that the G20 Summit puts out, like little videos, most of them contain almost no information. And it's like these little mood videos showing like the spaces that they're meeting in and all these people talking. Um, and the cultural events they're going to, they actually attend like yoga sessions and stuff like this together. Um, I, I kind of suspect that there's a lot of bullshit going on at these at these summits because, the, you know, that it's just like it's a socialization thing. You know, the reason why I think we are not getting a lot of concrete like documents of what what has been, you know, what, what this has actually been accomplished by these these three years of discussions around the cultural sector might be because when you look at the actual rooms where these discussions are taking place, they're full of people. They're huge. There's so many delegates there, which makes sense. But how are you supposed to really have a discussion when there's so many people there? Um, all of them, you know, some people prepare speeches. Some people just kind of ad hoc, I guess, speak is what I assume. I, I haven't actually seen footage of, of what happens in these rooms when they're having these discussions. And I just don't know how they're they're expected to come to any kind of coherent conclusion. And that's why it must be that it just takes them long to, to a long time just to agree on what their areas of focus are going to be. Cultural and creative sectors are major sources of economic value and jobs. So now they're just going to go more deeply into these kind of um, smaller kind of summaries that I just read to you. Although there is a growing appreciation of the economic and social importance of cultural and creative sectors, the absence of internationally comparable statistics means that it remains largely undervalued in the policy debate. One often cited estimate notes cultural and creative sectors generate annual re revenues of $2.25 trillion US dollars and account for 29.5 million jobs globally, more than the telecoms or automotive sector in many economies. That's interesting, right? But that's also because the definition is just really, really broad. In G20 countries with available data, estimates prepared for this note show that cultural and creative sectors account for between 1% to 2% of jobs and 1% and 3% of value added. Unfortunately, because I am 
not an economist. I don't know if that's a lot or not much or average. I don't know. These estimates are conservative as they do not include jobs in sectors such as architecture, design, and cultural education, which is cultural education being a huge part, I think, of, of what the cultural sector ultimately is, and do not capture creative jobs in non-creative sectors, like designers working in the automotive industry, and or volunteer employment, which is common in cultural and creative sectors. Broader views of the sector, for example, through the inclusion of software, as is done in the United Kingdom, estimate that the sector is responsible for around 6% of GDP. Estimates by Bikraf, Indonesia Creative Economy Agency, show that Indonesia's creative industry, including the culinary sector, contributes 7.4% to the country's GDP and accounted for 14.3% of Indonesia's workforce in 2017. Here, they're just comparing two countries who, who have a very different definition of what the, what the cultural and creative sectors are. United Kingdom includes software development, uh, and Indonesia includes culinary arts. Which if you're, I mean, if you're comparing those two statistics, if one of them counts that and the other one counts that, I, do, I don't even know what you're comparing at that point. So now they have some, some graphs. Um, I'm linking this obviously in the description so you can look at all the graphs there. The weight of the sector is particularly high in capital regions and cities. That should probably surprise no one. National estimates mask the often higher shares of employment and GDP in cities and capital regions. In South Korea, France, the United Kingdom, Japan, Mexico, Italy, and Canada, for example, the capital regions, which typically have a country's largest city, have the highest shares of employment in cultural and creative sectors. Other studies using varying methodologies estimate that the share of jobs in cultural and creative sectors is over 10% in cities such as Austin, Kunsu in China, London uh, in the UK, Los Angeles, Milan, Seoul, and Tokyo. So I, I don't think that would surprise anyone. That's just a little observation. The economic footprint of cultural and creative sectors is even larger. So they were talking about employment before, but then there's the economic footprint. The value added generated directly by the sector itself does not reveal its full importance, particularly as it has large backward linkages in the economy that drive upstream production. Um, I had to look up uh, the backward linkages and upstream production. So what they're saying is that there's a lot of upstream uh, production to the creative economies, upstream production being the stuff that gets made before you get to the making of the product in that particular economy. Uh, consumers spent more on culture and recreation combined than restaurants and hotel, household furnishings and maintenance, and apparel. Across G20 countries with available data, the share of household expenditures in the domestic economy on recreation and culture ranges from 4.2% in South Africa to 11.2% in the UK. Another graph showing that indeed household expenditures on recreation and culture, I don't know what the difference between recreation and culture, like what, what exactly falls underneath that, but it's more than they spend on, re on restaurants and hotels, which is interesting. And education, interestingly, is at the very lowest. So 1.9% of total household expenditures in the G20 countries are on education. That's interesting. The cultural and creative sector was growing in most countries prior to the pandemic. Pre-pandemic growth in cultural and creative sectors was outpacing growth more generally in many countries. In the 27 countries of the EU, for example, cultural employment increased by over 11% between 2011 and 2019. Interesting compared to a 5.8 increase in total employment. Growth in household final consumption on recreation and cultural also outpaced total household consumption 
increasing by 20% compared to 10% between 2011 and 2019 in G20 countries with available data. Now, again, it, it makes me ask the question what they're calling a, a job in a creative sector. I mean, are they including software developers? Are they, you know, what are they including in that? Creative goods are a significant driver of trade. Between 2002 and two, uh, 2015, the size of the global market for creative goods more than doubled, reaching over 500 billion U.S. dollars by 2015. It's interesting that they're doing all this in U.S. dollars. Comparable data on creative services is not available. So they're making a distinction between creative goods and creative services. Um, creative services might be more interesting to the individual artist, I assume. The Asian plus three countries accounted for almost 40% of global exports of creative goods, while Europe, included the including the United Kingdom, accounted for a further third. China, the United States, and France are the top three exporters of creative goods globally, even ignoring the spillovers generated by the cultural sector as a magnet for tourism. In China, France, India, Italy, the United Kingdom, and Turkey, creative goods account for 5% or more of total national exports. In countries such as France, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Australia, creative goods also represent a sizable share of imports. What's interesting, there's a graph under here showing um, exports versus imports of creative goods. And China has a very, quite low imports of creative goods, but very high exports. It has a very, like, it's strikingly different than the rest um, of these. Um, the only other uh, countries that have fairly significantly fewer um, imports than exports, they, that is, they export their culture more than they import it, um, are India and Turkey, maybe Indonesia, and also actually kind of Italy. But um, other than that, most of the, the countries that are listed here import more culture than they export. The sector was hit hard by COVID-19. No shit, Sherlock. Uh, cultural and creative sectors have been heavily affected by the pandemic, particularly venue-based sectors like museums, theaters, cinemas, performing, and live arts, obviously. The total turnover of the sector in the EU, plus the United Kingdom, is estimated to have fallen by over 30%, uh, accounting for 200 billion euros between 2019 and 2020. This has wider repercussions through backwards and forward linkages in value chains. For example, festivals have extensive infrastructure requirements from stages to tents and catering, so their temporary closures had large repercussions throughout these supply chains. I mean, what's striking here is that they talk about a 30% uh, drop in the turnover of the sector, but I don't think the sector consists only of places like the museums, theaters, cinema, performing, and live arts. Those sectors, like, you know, fell by over half, you know, 70% or something like that. The impact on livelihoods by the COVID-19 pandemic was immediate within the cultural sector. The falls in economic output have translated into significant job and income losses for cultural and creative workers, indeed. Emergency relief measures, such as furlough schemes and income support for the self-employed, were put in place in many countries to support workers throughout the economy. However, the measures were not always well-suited for workers in cultural and creative sectors, reflecting the often precarious nature of their employment status. For example, self-employment support schemes were not always well adapted for the types of portfolio working and hybrid working that are more common for creative professionals. Again, they're going back to that um, reality within the creative sector that there's just a lot of kind of 
what they call por portfolio working, which is an interesting term, and hybrid working. I think we can kind of intuit what those mean, that there's just a lot of, you know, multiple streams of income kind of thing going on. And and also freelancers, lots of freelancers. So it's, it's, it's a that's a group of people that's like, in terms of research, is really hard to kind of keep track of. And it's also hard for um, institutions to know, you know, how to categorize these people and then how to possibly give them relief during a pandemic. Relief schemes were not always well suited to provide income support to the sole proprietors of incorporated companies, which is the case of many creative professionals. I had to look up incorporated companies. I mean, I, I looked it up and incorporated companies is used to mean businesses registered with a state so that it becomes a separate legal entity. But that can be a nonprofit um, and it, it can actually be a micro, micro entity. Um, and they're talking about sole proprietors of incorporated companies. So sometimes an incorporated company can actually just be one artist who has um, a permit to, you know, a, a small business to sell their goods. And this is, they say, the case for many creative professionals. The situation of creative professionals is even more precarious in countries with large shares of informal employment in the sector. So some countries, informal employment, I, I mentioned this earlier, is basically when you don't have a contract, um, which I have worked, I have worked, I've actually done fairly significant projects, which were without a contract, which was very much employ informal employment. I've also done a lot of tourist concerts where I also did not have a contract. Pre-existing challenges in the sector were amplified. By the way, every time I, there's all these headings, I hope that I'm in my intonation showing you what is the heading and what is the body of the text. The crisis has amplified pre-existing challenges such as lack of employment security and income instability due to reliance on multiple and often temporary jobs. So this really, I think, hits home for a lot of people working in the sector. A large proportion of cultural and creative professionals are either self-employed, work in very small or micro companies, or operate in the informal sector. In Europe in 2019, 32% of the workforce are self-employed more than twice as many as the European economy as a whole, which is 14%. So twice as many people in the creative sector are self-employed than in the economy as such. This reflects in large part the project-based nature of work in the sector exactly. Both public cultural institutions and large private firms alike rely on an interconnected network of freelancers and micro-firms, which provide creative content, goods, and services. While informal employment in the sector is more widely spread in developing countries, and even in more developed countries, informality in certain creative jobs, such as handicrafts, also exists. I think that this is what, what must be so frustrating to people who are kind of policymakers, that so many of us are just so hard to track and pin down um, because of the kind of informal, what they call informal employment and the and the uh, micro companies and the self-employment. Um, but the way that, that there is this interconnected network that actually really is a basis for the arts economy at law, uh, as such, um, it's I think it's very hard for policymakers to kind of wrap their brains around, I think. The effects of the pandemic could be long-lasting and slow the recovery. Cultural and creative workers tend to transition to work outside the sector during recession, uh, recessionary periods and may even stay outside the sector post-recession. I mean, I can attest that I know people like that. The resulting skills losses and shortages could slow the sector's recovery. In September 2020 survey, over one quarter of freelance museum professionals reported that they were considering changing their careers entirely. 
I mean, this is a, a, a survey of museum professionals, so it's like a very specific group of people. Um, but I guess they're kind of offering, I mean, they've already said that they have issues with finding um, data on this. So I guess they're using this particular data point to, and maybe generalizing it out to the broader cultural uh, sector. This could limit the sector's ability to contribute to entrepreneurship and employment growth more generally during the recovery. Evidence suggests that the sector played an important role in the recovery in earlier downturns, such as the 2008 financial crisis. Between 2013 and 2017, the survival rates of companies in the sector in Europe were higher than a benchmark of service companies in the short and long term. Yeah, this is a, a, a sentence that I don't understand the meaning of within what they're saying. They're saying that the survival rates of companies in the, in the creative sector in Europe was higher than service companies as such. I don't know uh, how that plays into their argument. If unattended, this could seriously affect the long-term viability and competitiveness of cultural and creative sectors in many countries, whilst also slowing the sector's ability to drive recovery in the broader economy, notably tourism, but also in broader innovation-driven ecosystems. Uh, I think maybe what they're saying is that because the creative sector in particular was hit so hard by the pandemic, and yet in the past has been um, integral to keeping the economy going, it means that the overall recovery might be slowed because the, the creative sector um, has been particularly hit by this pandemic, if that makes sense. A resilient recovery can leverage culture's ability to drive innovation and entrepreneurship. By the way, they keep throwing this word innovation around, and it's one of those buzzwords that I just don't know what they actually mean by that. Like, what is innovate? Like, and, and is innovation necessarily good? You can innovate something that that makes things worse, can't you? So, what? Why is innovation thrown around like this nice little buzzword? I don't get it. And cultural and creative sectors, as well as cultural participation and education, drive innovation across national and local economies through a number of channels. Cultural and creative sectors produce a multitude of new products and services. And they are also important suppliers of ideas and new approaches for other activities. Beyond these linear inputs, arts and culture are increasingly recognized as part of a wider innovation system through cross-innovation in other sectors, the role that arts education can play in building a more innovative workforce, and innovation in the culture sector itself. Innovation, innovation, innovation. I don't know what they mean by innovation. I, I really don't. An example of such... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I spoke too soon. An example of such innovation is the capacity to engage audiences, consumers, in the co-production, co-creation of content. For example, when users, creative enterprises, other businesses and consumers, engage with the innovation process, especially in video games, music, and design. What the hell does that mean? I mean, they're talking about something that I think is pretty insidious, which is this the, the, the fact that, for example, YouTube has had the wonderful innovation of allowing, quote unquote, um, people to put videos up and thus to create the platform. So it's, it really it's user created, but the people profiting off of it are YouTube and Google ultimately. Um, is that what they mean by this? That's the innovation they're talking about? So that's exactly why I'm I, a little bit suspicious of the word innovation, because that sort of innovation is just an innovation of how to screw people out of their time and money. 
Strong business-to-business linkages to the creative sectors are associated with high levels of innovative activity and performance. Research in the United Kingdom and Austria has shown that industries with stronger links to the creative industries had considerably stronger innovation performance. This could be explained by the products being direct inputs into innovation, but also by supply-side linkages facilitating the transfer of knowledge and ideas including through workforce mobility. I think they're just saying that industries that rub shoulders with creatives are more creative. Creativity is like a virus that spreads through contact. But I I don't think creativity, like innovation in itself, like we have seen is uh, with YouTube, is not necessarily a good for society. In addition, creative jobs tend to be more high-skilled than average, and many occupations are at lower risk of automation. In 2019, in the EU, the share of people working in the field of culture that had a tertiary level of education attainment, 59%, was considerably higher than the average for all workers, which is 34%. This should surprise no one. I mean, it's, it's in a way, it's an overeducated, underemployed workforce. That's what I keep saying. Or precariously employed at the, employed at the very least. Evidence suggests that the nature of creative jobs, non-repetitive tasks, makes them less prone to automation. A recovery in the sector is therefore less likely to take the form of, quote, jobless growth, where technology and digitalization cause a displacement of workers. So there, I mean, jobless growth is when people get richer whilst employing fewer workers. And they say that the creative sector is not in as much danger of that happening. I wonder, I mean, this was written in 2021 before the AI scare, uh, which I think was a huge overstatement and was kind of a hype. I mean, I think it was the, the whole AI hype was was hype um, in terms of, of, of um, taking the place of artists. But at the same time, you know, the exploitation is real there. A more innovative workforce benefits from arts education and cultural participation. Creative occupations, like the creative workers found in most industrial sectors, drive innovation across the economy. What is this innovation innovative workforce. Like, for example, the sector has been identified as critical to revitalizing high-value added manufacturing. So high-value manufacturing, uh, apparently, I had to look this up, is it's when a company generates a lot of um, work outside of itself. Uh, That is a lot of value for the um, uh, kind of it stimulates the economy around it. So apparently the creative sector is critical in revitalizing high-value added manufacturing. I mean, I'm sure, sure all these statements mean something to economists, and the G20 summit is, is primarily it's an economics um, meeting. But a lot of these statements, I feel like I would need more examples, but that's probably just because, you know, this isn't, this, I'm not the target audience of this. <laughs> in fact, tertiary graduates in the arts play an important role in innovation, again, that word innovation, with one study finding that they are just as likely to participate in product innovation as graduates in engineering and computing. I would love to, I mean, because I can imagine the innovation that engineering and computing uh, people might bring to to, to a sector. I'm not sure what people with these creative education, also, it's such a broad term. Again, when you, I mean, are you talking about people who are designers, architects? Are you talking about performers? Because I think performers actually probably you know, bring less innovation, quite frankly. Critical thinking and creativity are crucial for innovation. Even beyond, I'm really getting annoyed with this, actually, because like, you define innovation. How is innovation a net good? Even beyond traditional product or technology innovations, typically driven by engineers, scientists, and mathematicians. Basically what they're trying to do, and you know, I could I could see the person writing this 
pro- who's you know not credited on this memo and it was probably a joint effort of some sort but i could i could see the people writing this truly caring about the creative sector and and really talking to people within the sector and then trying to translate it into words that people who only think about stimulating economies and the bottom line think about and how they think and so you have to use these buzzwords like innovation and what what i think innovation is kind of like a blanket term for kind of a buzzword for is is to say you know when the creative sector is thriving it's infusing the culture at large and i suppose therefore the economy at large with lots of ideas <laughs> Um, it's a good for society. I mean, it makes society more interesting. But how do you translate that to someone who thinks in terms of numbers, you know? The entrepreneurship and innovation potential of culture is often poorly acknowledged and not well integrated into national and local development policies. Supporting new cultural and creative businesses is not only a way to promote the growth of the sector, but also to support cross-fertilization with other sectors. So this idea of new cultural and creative businesses is interesting. I mean, I think what they're meaning is, is you know, supporting small businesses um, and maybe even, you know, small creative companies, small galleries. That to me is, is interesting and would probably be a good thing. This requires better access to credit and venture capital. Like in Indonesia in 2017, around 92.4% of firms were self-funded and did not receive outside funding either through bank loans or fintech assistance. So they're saying actually there should be more there should be more access to uh, to using credit. Um, I'm really suspicious of using credit, but anyway, and other instruments to increase the financial stability of the sector. The art bonus tax exemption measure in Italy incentivizes private and corporate investment in cultural heritage preservation and cultural production. I just want to say here, it's interesting that it was when Italy was heading the G20 summit that the uh, cultural working group was launched. And I believe it was at the behest of the of the Italian um, organizers. And what's interesting to me, having spent some time in Italy as a singer, is that Italy has not been great about um, supporting uh, artists. And I think that, you know, they, they don't support um, very many small theaters. And it's become this weird place where, on the one hand, it has this incredible history. But what's being done with that history is that a bunch of people are selling grifts around the fact that it's the cradle of opera, and that's how they have to support themselves. There's not enough, I think, culture happening in Italy because they have not been very kind to their cultural sector. That's my statement on Italy. More substantial efforts are also needed to facilitate the birth of new firms and support promising startups and support connections with major industry players in non-creative fields. Innovation support mechanisms largely catering to technological innovations could be adapted to other forms of innovation more commonly in this more common in the sector, such as innovations in format and content, including through mixed use of different media. Okay, so they're talking about the whole mixed media thing. I guess that's what I'm working on. I'm working on vocal theater, an equivalent of dance theater and physical theater, which I'm thinking of as a kind of place to to put what I think of as refugees from the opera education industrial complex and create um, a format that we can participate in and that we can be proud of. So they're, I mean, they're talking about, you know, this idea of stimulating upstart, stimulating small companies, supporting work that doesn't fit into necessarily any media category. I mean, the whole intermedia, um, interdisciplinary thing is such a buzzword now around the arts. 
They could also recognize that the sector generates innovation through creative skills, new ways of working, new business models, and new forms of cooperation. Cultural and creative sectors have long been at the vanguard of experimenting with innovative models of digital production and distribution. Digital cultural goods such as ebooks, music, video, and games are by far the biggest revenue source for the digital economy. Right. And they're also, it's really decimating creative creative jobs, creative industries. I mean, but that all, all already started like with the radio, basically. I mean, technology, the, the way that throughout the 20th century, live music, theater, all of that has slowly been eaten up by these technologies, starting with radio, then cinema, then TV, and then the internet and streaming has just been quite remarkable. Uh, and but they're saying here, well, they're but digital, you know, digital goods are a big part of like the digital economy in general. Like think about that. Uh, the digital economy has really eaten up a lot of the creative sector, but the people who have innovated it are the people who are making money off of it, which is not the artists uh, themselves. One study estimates approximately 66 billion United States dollars of B2C sales uh, of digital cultural content and 22 billion of advertising revenues for online media and streaming websites globally in 2013. Right, so it's a big business. Digital cultural goods also fuel sales of digital devices and demand for high bandwidth telecom services. Oh boy. Digitalization has also contributed to a uh, democratization of cultural participation and production, which has made creating, sharing, and collaborating on artistic endeavors more affordable and accessible. I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. Um, in Death of the Artist, uh, William Derezievitz talks about this. The fact that there's this lie sold by Silicon Valley about how the internet has democratized creative production and who can who has access to distribute their work and it absolutely has I'm not saying it hasn't but there are there are consequences in fact what's actually happening this great innovation that they mentioned earlier basically people are making content for free for you know something like YouTube and making money for YouTube by making free content I mean that's the great innovation right and this is, you know, particularly bad for artists who uh, would like to make very good content and actually be paid for it. In Saudi Arabia, for example, a major program is underway to create a digital repository of the nation's culture, which is expected to enhance access to culture and cultural participation while fostering innovation and creativity. It's one of those things that sounds really good on paper. I wonder what it's actually doing. <laughs> COVID-19 has accelerated digitalization even further as workers, organizations, and audiences have had to adapt to new ways of engaging with culture and creativity due to lockdowns and social distancing guidelines. For example, there has been a stark increase in the demand for online content, which has benefited streaming platforms for music, cinema, and television. Many cultural institutions, such as museums and theaters, have also rapidly expanded efforts to digitalize and provide online access, albeit not necessarily as a revenue-generating mechanism. Ha ha ha, yes, providing free content. This will likely bring about permanent changes in audience engagement and content provision models, creating new opportunities for innovation, more innovation, and growth going forward. However, digital access does not replace a live cultural experience or all the jobs that go with it. No shit, Sherlock. And questions remain about how revenues for streaming platforms are shared. Right, so they're touching very politely on, on the big issue here. Cultural and creative sectors will continue to have a role to play as developers and testers of new technological solutions and experience formats in other sectors of social value. 
there are ample opportunities to experiment with a stronger integration between culture and welfare, health and well-being, social cohesion, and education policies. For example, museum efforts to outreach to their public through digital platforms as a result of COVID-19 could serve as a model for welfare and social services in fields such as telemedicine, elderly care, support to students in rural or isolated areas, and so on. The sector still faces important challenges related to digital divides. Digital tools, infrastructure, and skills are unequally distributed among the sector's firms and workers. Yeah as well as consumers. Promoting policies, I mean, the, the, to me, it's not even that the skills are unevenly distributed, it's that the who owns that digital distribution is incredibly centralized. Promoting policies that provide widespread broadband internet access beyond metropolitan areas and make t tools for digital creative production more accessible, many of which are cost prohibitive, especially for small and mid-sized firms and early career workers, are important. Partnerships between the public sector and technology companies could help facilitate digital access in the culture and creative sector, such as they do in other sectors. Upgrading the digital skills of workers and firms in the sector is also crucial. You know, I actually wrote a whole grant, EU grant proposal, which was blocked at the last minute by the person I was, I was supposed to be handing it in with. Whole big story having to do with the short film I was producing for like three years trying to get produced. If you look through my catalog, you'll see uh, content related to that. One of the things I proposed was that, you know, by making a film, an opera film, we could kind of upgrade the digital skills of, you know, people in the, in the theater world and particularly in the opera world. So I was making that argument. I was making that argument only because I was writing that grant. And it's just, it's interesting how these sort of institutions think and how you have to bend what you say and how you say it to how they think. Because I actually, if I'm looking at reality, I don't think that upgrading digital skills is what the creative sector needs. What the creative sector needs is a way to actually own what they put online, not use these platforms that make money off of them uploading free content. But it's kind of something that's inescapable because you know, if, if you want to feel like you are doing something that's worthwhile and that actually can make an impact, you kind of have to put it online to find other people. And look, I mean, I've that's how I've met so many amazing people through, you know, the online world and through this platform, actually, of Artists on the Verge. But I, I don't think, I mean, the, the conclusion I keep coming back to is that, and this is, you know, we talked about this extensively with Riley Smithers, the, the uh, Web3, the, the composer and Web3 expert that I interviewed um, fairly recently, that a lot of art simply does not work and does not belong online. And you as an artist are never going to benefit from putting free content up online. So I do not think it's about upgrading digital skills of workers within that within the creative sector. Okay, now they're going to transition to talking about the, the green revolution or the green transition. Culture and heritage can help promote more responsible pro-social and pro-environmental behaviors. Now, this actually also brings me back to my conversation with Riley Smithers, who also wrote um, critiques and studied actually how money was distributed to projects by um, funding bodies. And um, he mocked this idea, and I think rightly so, that, that is so prevalent within the, the art sector when it is interacting with funding bodies, that somehow artists in the creative sector is going to be responsible for, uh, the, you know, helping with the green transition. What's I think so wrong about that 
is that it puts the onus on individuals, um, ordinary people basically, to change their behavior in order to promote the, the, the green transition. And while it's fine to do that, I mean, I love composting, but the onus should be on the, the truly powerful here. The onus should be on these, these corporations which make money off of pesticides. The onus should be on the agricultural sector, not on individual farmers, but the sector which the companies which benefit from the use of pesticides and from this this creation of these monocultures, for example, which require basically the use of more pesticides, and it creates the cycle of creating a, a manufacturing a need for something that is really destructive for the environment simply because of profit. That's who the onus should be on. That's who should be talked to. And if artists could change their mind, they already would have. God damn it. This isn't about convincing ordinary people to compost. They're thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to make everyone really socially responsible by, you know, doing little songs and dances about social responsibility and recycling. And we're, that's how the, the world is going to become more green. Bullshit. What you need to do is target the people who are actually making money off of things that are hurting the environment on a massive scale. But those people are so powerful that they can't get to them, probably, or they don't want to. Artists in India are pioneering new approaches to the circular economy and sustainability by turning waste into artworks as a way to invite both the industry and civil society to take a different stance towards environmental issues and social responsibility. Do you really think that's going to convince the people that are, you know, making money off, off of, you know, cutting down the Amazon? In Brazil, artists collectively are engaged in art-based sustainability projects, which involve the civil society in transformational social actions, often with a strong focus on the Amazon. I don't know why, but it really, this idea that artists can convince people to stop being assholes is actually, I, I don't know, I should believe in that. I'd love to believe in that. But I think it's sort of, it's a distraction. I mean, because artists are kind of from the middle of society. So what you're basically saying is you're saying, okay, this 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 chunk of people from the middle of society, hey, why don't you talk amongst yourselves and make make each other more sustainable and make each other, you know, live better and, you know, make your have your compost and recycle and shit. And it's not addressing the underlying issues, the, the hugely powerful corporations and the kind of ecosystems, that the, the economic ecosystems that they're embedded in, that, you know, which are causing a vast majority of the, uh, the devastation to the environment that's happening. Like, it, it's just ridiculous. Beyond behavioral changes, cultural and creative sectors can help push the frontier on new green business models and approaches, including in the social economy. This includes creative reuse of objects and goods or supporting expansion of the circular economy. Cultural and creative sectors also contribute to environmentally friendly planning, infrastructure, and mobility. The EU's new European Bauhaus is one such example of how these links are gaining visibility. Indigenous practices for land preservation are another example. While the pandemic has caused an unprecedented downturn in international tourism, it has also sparked innovations that will likely last over the long term. I'm starting to really hate this buzzword. Evidence suggests that new models of creative tourism can deliver considerable added value, increase tourism demand, and diversify tourism supply. Innovations in digital and virtual tourism offer... Really? digital and virtual tourism, offer opportunities to promote, quote, hybrid tourism, the preservation of cultural heritage, and more sustainable tourism models. 
Increased digital attractiveness of destinations is also likely to translate into increased tourism demand, as well as the distribution of this demand to a wider range of locations and attractions. However, small businesses will face particular challenges due to their limited capacity to invest in large technological upgrades to keep up with the demands and changed consumer expectations of post-pandemic tourism. Yeah, so tourism, 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 obviously it is, it is a big part of how someone who's looking at the economy is going to think of the cultural and creative sector um, because tourism is such a driver um, of, of the economy in many, many places. Smartly managed culture-led regeneration strategies can help revive towns, villages, and urban neighborhoods. While the contribution of culture to urban regeneration has been widely recognized for decades, in some cases it has also amplified gentrification and led to the displacement of disadvantaged residents. Um, there's a whole really fascinated section on gentrification and the role that um, artists play in that kind of like gentrification chain um, in The Death of the Artist by uh, William Derezivitz. Despite tourism's clear potential as a driver for positive change in recent years, some large cities and popular destinations have suffered from rapid or unplanned tourism growth. This can lead to congestion, degradation of local services, and quality of life for residents, and threats to the environmental and social sustainability of natural and cultural assets. A socially sustainable approach to local development can leverage culture's role to not only attract new residents and tourists, but also in improving the quality of life for existing residents. For example, the Confederation of Indian Industry is promoting an art and culture-based approach to urban placemaking in India as a way to strengthen identity and social cohesion in local communities and to promote attractiveness. In 2020, despite the pandemic, the Heritage Commission of Saudi Arabia launched 37 projects to revive and regenerate through culture, heritage villages, and sites across all regions of the country. COVID-19 has sparked creative rethinking of some of the traditional models of local development and urban regeneration. The rapid increase of teleworking puts into question the longer-term vitality of central business districts in large cities, whilst positioning high amenity as well as some small and rural locations as potential hubs for attracting highly skilled professionals. Recovery funds and public investment packages also provide a unique opportunity to experiment with new local development strategies and policies that address these challenges and opportunities more systematically. Culture may play a key role both in the creative rethinking and transformation of central business districts, as well as small urban and rural areas looking to attract new residents. So basically, I think they're just talking about the creative industry's role in attracting people and tourists to certain places and stimulating those economies, the possible pitfalls of that, um, but then also the advantages of that. So now there's another section heading, the benefits of a strong cultural sector go far beyond economic impacts. Culture makes our societies healthier, happier, and more inclusive. Evidence continues to grow on the health and well-being benefits. The connections culture has with health and well-being are increasingly recognized at the research, clinical, and policy levels. Evidence suggests that cultural participation positively affects both the life expectancy and quality of life even after controlling for factors such as income, education, or health status. A 2019 World Health Organization review identified a key role for the arts in preventing illness and promoting health, as well as managing and treating illness throughout the lifespan. 
They're also encouraging results from experiments on how cultural activities can mitigate the negative effects of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease for patients and support better coping by caregivers and families. Experiments are already in progress in many countries. For example, quote, culture by prescription programs prescribe cultural experiences like visiting museums including as complementary interventions. So I guess they're they're saying that in some countries they're starting to like prescribe cultural um, events uh, to people <laughs> as a health benefit. That's cool. Cultural engagement is also part of active aging policies. Further support for these types of systemic experiments, as well as cross-sector professional training to combine cultural skills with those related to nursing, medical, or social services can help further build on this potential. I can attest that my grandmother lives from one cultural event to the other. <laughs> Her life centers on theater and the symphony. And that is, and what was so interesting about the pandemic was that basically, even though she was the person that was most at risk, she was also the most um, kind of psychologically uh, affected by the lack of cultural events. In addition to creating demand for cultural goods, cultural participation can also be a tool for social inclusion and building local social capital. Cultural can help people overcome social barriers and establish meaningful social relationships. Culture can also address the roots of social hostility towards people of different backgrounds. Culture is proven effective in this regard, even in extreme cases of connecting or reconciling people from ethnic groups in permanent armed conflict. Ensuring diversity of the cultural offer is also essential for inclusion of diverse population groups. Cultural engagement can help increase levels of self-confidence, which is particularly relevant in the prevention of school dropouts or desistance from crime. Lockdowns and social distancing measures brought even more awareness to the impact of arts and culture on well-being, including how arts and culture can help address social isolation and exclusion. Recognizing these impacts, Saudi Arabia undertook in 2020 a major survey of cultural participation which will inform future public cultural policies aimed at overcoming social barriers and promoting well-being through culture. In Indonesia, the arts development company funded by the British Council of Indonesia is developing a pilot program in the arts as a major platform for the development of new social enterprise projects. These projects seek to promote community well-being with special emphasis on people with disabilities. I mean, that was just that whole uh, paragraph was just a, a grab bag of different ways that um, culture contributes to well-being and social uh, cohesion. If you're interested kind of in an anthropological look at that, I read an essay called The Arts After Darwin um, on this podcast. I think it's the last thing I published, actually. And it just it, it talks about how incredibly crucial culture and, and cultural activities are to societies. Now, what, what I always get uneasy with when I read this um, in a, you know, a report that's aimed at, at policymakers is that I really do question whether policymakers should even have their fingers in this. Like, I, I think this is something that communities need to make together. The main thing is, I don't really know that you can create these governmental or any kind of like programs that promote this. I think what you need to do is you need to identify those points where maybe there's there's a lack in resources or this kind of thing. Culture also has a role to play in increasing educational performance, including for disadvantaged groups. Research suggests that cultural participation can improve educational performance generally. And and that formal and non-formal arts education and cultural participation can lead to the development of critical thinking, social and emotional skills, like communication and collaboration. 
However, across G20 countries with available data, the share of time spent in compulsory general lower secondary education and arts in 2019 varied widely across countries, such as 4% in Australia or 13% in Italy. It's interesting that Italy has such a high rate. OECD, which is the, the organization that created this document, work on creative thinking suggests that it can improve a range of other skills and abilities from metacognitive capabilities to inter and intrapersonal and problem solving skills, as well as support identity development, academic achievement, future career success and social engagement. Creativity and critical thinking skills will become increasingly in demand in the labor market, particularly in light of automation and digitalization. Okay, so all these arguments for how it stimulates the brain and all that, and how that's actually really good for the economy. Cultural engagement can be important in improving people's sense of self-worth and motivation to invest in their intellectual curiosity and willingness to learn. For instance, Chinese schools are increasingly promoting educational projects or intangible cultural heritage as a way to boost intellectual curiosity and sensory motor skills in children. This could be particularly important for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. A more inclusive cultural participation policy initiative addressing such subjects could positively affect school performance and attendance. However, the links between cultural participation and school performance is mediated by a number of factors, including the family environment and more generally socioeconomic status. I mean, I guess they are arguing for this idea that really arts education should not just be something extra that people who have the money uh, can pay for, that it should really be an integral part of education because it has all these other benefits, including just uh, kids wanting to go to school more because there's a high dropout rate, especially amongst disadvantaged kids. Accelerated digitalization will reinforce the relationship between culture and education. Lockdowns and social distancing measures have boosted the development of digital education platforms and, and ed tech innovation. Growing forms of digital edutainment, <laughs> they're talking about like all the video essays on YouTube maybe, could include educational games, but also new platforms that integrate various elements of interactive learning, group exchange, and co-creation or con of content. The gaming industry could become an important partner for government and schools while the digital platforms of cultural institutions could be also used more strategically as educational resources to complement physical access to these spaces. Efforts are also needed to make the sector itself more inclusive, for example, for women, ethnic minorities, and those with migrant backgrounds. In 2019, the proportion of women in EU cultural employment, 47.7%, was slightly higher than the average share of women in employment across the whole of the economy, 45.9%. However, women, I mean, it's still almost half. However, women comprised only 21% of all directors, writers, producers, executive producers, editors, and cinematographers working on the top 100 grossing films in 2020. I mean, that's a, a specific metric having to do with the film industry and only in the top 100 grossing films. In one survey of diversity of art museums in the United States, it was found that while 61% of museum staff were women, only 46% of directors were women. Other work in the United Kingdom has found that while representation of Black, Asian, and ethnic minorities in creative sectors is growing, they remain underrepresented compared to the demographics of the places where these sectors are concentrated. So that is actually the end of the document. I think I'm going to have to spend some time digesting this. But, it, you know, it's been a lot of it was kind of like made me think, no shit, Sherlock. But it was also interesting to see 
certain uh, things that I've seen reflected um, in something that's kind of more researched, I guess. What is more pressing, I think, is what they're actually going to do with this information and like the concrete ways they're going to address all these things. And I have not been able to find that. Uh, but I'll be keeping an eye on that. I'll be keeping an eye on documents coming out of the G20 summit and see if something interesting comes out of it. I hope you enjoyed that peek into the G20 Cultural Working Group's reading materials. The Working Group will hold another session this month, which will culminate in another ministerial meeting on August 23rd, so maybe some materials will be released from that to the public, which might be interesting to read on Artists on the Verge. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and check out some of the indie artists I have talked to and other articles I've read pertaining to artists. The best way to keep up to date with Artists on the Verge is to subscribe to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. Here's to being on the Verge.